Welcome to the Eclectic Gamers Podcast, episode number nine. Today is Sunday, May 22nd. I'm Tony. And I'm Dennis. And we're going to be talking to you about uh, pinball, video games, and tabletop. In this episode, we've actually got a couple of interviews for you. And I'll start with what I've been doing this week. Um, I found out Netflix has pretty much all of the Ken Burns documentaries. So I've been watching some Ken Burns documentaries. I also watched Tommy Boy and Black Sheep. And those movies didn't age well. I mean... I remember mm. them being a lot funnier than, than than they are watching them again. I was never huge fans. I, I did like Tommy Boy a decent amount, but but yeah, I, I'm not I guess I'm not too surprised that, that the Farley Spade formula was well, it was a formula. So you've seen one, you've kind of seen them all. Yeah, and of the of the two, Tommy Boy was the better, but it just wasn't nearly as good as I remembered. I also watched Groundhog's Day, and that movie's every time I watch it, that movie's better and better every time I watch it. Oh uh, yes, it is excellent. Um, other than that, I've been in three uh, online Star Realms tournaments in the last couple of weeks. Um, I got badly beaten in one of them. I got not quite as badly beaten in the other, and and the third one's ongoing, so we'll see. Um, well, good luck. Yeah, it, it's going great so far. Uh, we also had the pinball tournaments at Pizza West and a Ghostbusters launch party that we attended at, at the 403 Club. Yeah, we were both at, at both of those uh, tournaments. I got spanked pretty handily at both of them. So, But I had a, re- a couple really good games on Medieval Madness, which is great considering it's a game that I never used to like. And I just recently really started learning it and getting better at it just in time for it to leave the lineup. Somewhat unfortunate, though it sounds like it will still be on location in the area. It just won't be in any of our tournament rotations anymore. Medieval Madness took a while to grow on me as well. I always thought Attack from Mars was a better version of that game. And I I think maybe it just has to do with the steepness of the ramps and such. But I've I've grown to appreciate a lot more actually having one of the remakes on location and getting to play it for as long as as we have had it available. Yeah, and that's about all I've really been up to. I've been playing video games just kind of randomly by whatever in my Steam list catches my eye, but I haven't really sat down and put a lot of time into anything. Well, I have uh, finally wrapped up Far Cry 4 in my video game play. I Actually, I pushed I pushed the at the end of this week, uh, or this last week, I should say, to do it so I could actually finally say I've finished it instead of constantly repeating that I'm still working on it. Uh, so I have started Witcher 3, which is a RPG I've been wanting to play for quite a while. I'm barely into it, though. I'm still in the tutorial phase, so there's nothing to discuss regarding it. I've heard uh, Far only- Cry 4 was pretty good. It was. I did not play Far Cry 3, and I know Far Cry 3 is kind of renowned for having a really interesting sort of villain, and I got the impression, based off the comparisons, that Far Cry 4 kind of tried to do the same thing, and it's an, they have an interesting kind of charismatic sort of villain for Far Cry 4, but it's not like he's uh, ever present in the dialogue. Maybe it's because I did a lot of the side quests while I was playing through until I did my final push. So, you know, for a lot of the side quests, you're not really hearing from him or on the radio or anything like that. Uh, Weird game, though. Constant eagle attacks on villagers. I didn't know eagles were so dangerous, but (laughs) apparently apparently they are their killers and you got to watch out for them. Eagle! Yeah. Yeah, that's that's exactly what they sound like. They would just yell, eagles, watch out for the tower. Collins. And it would just, it was I mean that and honey badgers were everywhere too so you just had to deal <laughs> you had to deal with honey badgers weren't as bad though because the eagles are hard to hit because they fly so I got through that uh, only movie I've watched recently was I finally watched uh, Dwayne the Rock Johnson's uh, blockbuster film San Andreas 
which I just decided I was going to watch a disaster movie. I hadn't really watched one in quite a while, which I would describe as 2012 light. I don't know if you ever saw 2012. I, I, I saw 2012 and I thought 2012 was a wonderful disaster porn film that was otherwise had a terrible story, but it was great for just watching things get destroyed. Then the, 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 you you probably would enjoy San Andreas. Then it is very similar. I would describe it as I call it 2012 light because I don't think it's as ridiculous as 2012 was, but it's close. They got a number of scenes that are just there's no way you would be able to survive this, but not as many scenes as 2012 did, where they're like dodging buildings in an airplane and things like that. Then they got some ridiculous uh, helicopter scenes and uh, a scene with boats trying to get over a crest of a wave and such. So it'll it, it scratches that just watch disaster itch, but it's not quite as far fetched, and the story's a little more down to earth uh, but i'm i mean we're talking these are vagaries this is not like an intellectual disaster movie or anything it is it is very much in that uh, armageddon-esque vein though p- better acted i would say but is it as tongue-in-cheek as the core no no it's played more straight up serious uh it's it's really uh while they do have those sort of wide sort of panorama shots of disaster the movie itself is very focused on the rock and him trying to get and he's a rescue chopper pilot but but the whole movie revolves around him trying to save his family specifically so it's so you're just it's sort of a microcosm within the disaster it's not trying to give you all these different families and all these different sort of thoughts uh going on at the same time you just have those occasional sort of panorama shots of what's going on but it's all very focused on just him his his wife and his kids so that's that's so it's more narrow in scope. Uh, and then, as you noted, we did the uh, we did the two recent pinball tournaments. I did as well as you did at Pizza West yesterday, which wasn't great. I won my first round, though. So I'm always happy when I win at least a round. And uh, I had a couple couple good games in my second round, one one game. And then next one I, I lost. We had a re we had a replay on a Ghostbusters and I had my best tournament score in Ghostbusters ever. Uh, it just wasn't good enough. But I was really ple- I was very proud of how well I did. So I was I was glad with that score. Uh, and then I got eliminated the next uh, next game, just two games out. So which was fine. I think th- those the two people I lost to actually ended up getting in the top three of the tournament I saw. And then Ghostbusters, uh, that actually went pretty well for me. It's not my highest rank I ever ended at a tournament, but in terms of IFPA, which for listeners, that's the International uh, Flipper Pinball Association, they uh, they score all these events. Uh, it's the highest number of points I've ever earned. So in terms of challenge, it's been it was the best I've I've done uh, performance wise. But I've actually the highest I've ever placed in a tournament's third. I got fourth at that. So. But there were you had to do a lot more rounds than in a normal in a normal monthly tournament we have in the Kansas City area. So that's pretty good for me. I really lucked out on a number of those uh, number of those uh, strikeout matches. But like that's pretty much it. Format. I do as well. But it, I mean, it does take it does take a, a bit of time. So you you really have to start earlier in the day, and uh, it takes up just a you know a very large chunk of time. So I'm glad they don't happen all the time. But no, I but do I do enjoy, enjoy them. them when they do happen. Well, with our intros out of the way, let's go ahead and transition into the pinball topic. Uh, first thing, uh, and really only main thing that's solely pinball that we're going to go over is the results of our 1980s Pinball Machine Mania tournament. 
So as we had announced during the last podcast, we were doing voting for almost two weeks on round one. Uh, we have a 64 team bracket with 16 machines uh, for each region. So four regions and the regions are the manufacturers. So we had a Williams region, a Gottlieb region, a Bally region, and then another region, which represented four different manufacturers to make up the rest. Well, I have the results all tallied up and ready to go. And so the first thing I think we should do is just quickly hit what happened in round one. So I figured the best thing to do is I'll say what, what all won in each matchup, but with a, we'll pay some particular attention to any upset situations. And I very simply defined an upset as any time a lower-seeded machine beat a higher-seeded machine, even if they were very close, like, you know, nine versus eight sort of thing. But uh, so let's start with the Williams region. Uh, there was only one upset, and it was a nine seed versus an eight seed. The nine seed was Space Station, and it did end up beating the eight seed F-14 Tomcat with 72.7% of the vote. So I'm surprised by how much it beat Tomcat. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised. I thought that would be a really close fight because they're both really good tables. I, I, I was surprised to see Space Station go up that much. I, I was as well. Uh, I did vote for Space Station, but... Uh, I just because I'd, I and I'd know it in the last podcast for me, F-14 Tomcat plays too fast. I, I feel like I don't ever have control on it. So I enjoy, I just enjoy playing Space Station more. But uh, I was just I mean, almost three fourths of the vote went to Space Station, which I thought was surprising. Yeah. Uh, other than that, it was all all standard uh, top seeds uh, winning out. So Earthshaker did beat Grand Lizard. Taxi beat Space Shuttle. Cyclone beat Joust. Black Knight 2000 beat Black Knight. High Speed beat Sorcerer. Bonsai Run beat Swords of Fury. And Pinbot beat Firepower. Firepower. Yeah, poor Firepower. So let's go on over to the, the Gottlieb region, which is one that you and I both didn't have a lot of knowledge on in terms of actually having played very many of these machines. Yeah, no, I, I've only played a couple of them. Yeah, I've tried to actually start researching some of these so I can understand them a little bit better so I can actually start. I actually didn't vote on a lot of these because I just I didn't know and I didn't have enough time uh, dedicated to go and like look up tutorial videos or something so I could get some exposure. I don't know any place on location in the KC area that has Gottliebs from the 80s. I just I don't know of any. Yeah, I don't know either. So there were two upsets in the in the Gottlieb region. Uh, the number nine seed Arena beat the number eight seed The Amazing Spider-Man, but it only barely did it with 55.6% of the vote. So it was close. And then this was probably the biggest upset in terms of seed comparison, but the 14 seed Genesis beat the three seed Big House. Again, it was close, 55.6% yet again, but I was just shocked that a that a 14 seed actually got out of the first round. Yeah, that that really surprises me. Um I've not played Genesis, but I have played Big House. But it's a uh, I I don't know if I've played Big House or not. I've played Genesis virtually. The only thing I remember about really remember about Genesis is it's one of those really really 80s live photo back glasses that just stands out as borderline <laughs> appalling and by borderline i mean not borderline it's just appalling genesis i think if i were to describe it in a nutshell is it's kind of a bright of pinbot that didn't work out it just i don't think it i didn't think it worked very well uh, i need to play it again i haven't played it in months but yeah and i don't know anything about big house so i, I actually didn't vote on this round uh, on Genesis versus Big House. I did not cast a vote myself, but anyway, that was an upset. 
Uh, top seeds uh, the, for the rest were Haunted House did beat Volcano, Devil's Dare beat Bonebusters Incorporated, Black Hole beat Bounty Hunter, Robo War beat Bad Girls, TX Sector beat Lights Camera Action, and Spirit beat Mars Gods of War. God of War. So move into our third region, which is Bally. There were three upsets, uh, more than any other bracket. The uh, nine seed Medusa beat the eight seed Mousing Around with sixty three point six percent of the vote. Oh, I agree with that. I just think Medusa is a better game, but I really like Medusa. I did. I did as well. I contributed to that to that victory, and it's an interesting uh, that this this won't happen in our next bracket. But uh, the nine seed won in all three of these first brackets that we've discussed of the regions that we've discussed. So just sort of an interesting thing. Of course, they were up against eight seeds, so you did expect them to be close. But yeah. So there was that. Uh, the 11 seed Skateball did beat the six seed Embryon with 77.8%. I think that's the largest margin of victory any upset had. Uh, I'm checking my math. Yeah, it, it was. And I was really surprised about that. Uh, again, I don't have high familiarity with these games. A lot, I've seen a lot of people wanting Embryon. So I was just, I thought, wow, was Skateball that good? I, I think I think I I don't know if I voted on this one or not. I can't remember. I don't think I did because it does. I think I played Embryon, but I don't think I played Skateball, or maybe it's vice versa. I don't know. I probably played both and just don't remember very well. You mean you don't remember every machine you've ever played in your entire life? <sighs> I should. Unfortunately, if I only get like one game on them, I just they don't always unless they blow me away. They just don't. They just don't stick with me. Uh, so anyway, that was an upset. And then the third and final upset in the Bally region was the 12 seed eight ball deluxe limited edition beat the five seed Xenon with 72.7% of the vote. That surprises it did, me. It did not surprise me. Uh, I think that eight ball deluxe just is so much better gameplay than Xenon does. And the voters saw through the ugly limited edition nature of the <laughs> LE version. And they said, no, Xenon's all, she's all She's all purdied up. They dolled up her face, but that's all she's got going for her. So I probably shouldn't say that. I'm still trying to sell my Xenon. But, <laughs> but, but I, Which if I you just want a like, Xenon, there's a Xenon for sale. Just contact us at Eclectic Gamers. That's right. We st- I'm still trying to sell the Xenon. But uh, yeah, I just don't like the gameplay on Xenon. I think it's too stop and, it's too stop and go for me. But uh, top seeds uh, for the rest were the winners. So Elvira and the Party Monsters did beat Strange Science. Fathom beat Fireball 2. Centaur beat Frontier. Flash Gordon beat Centaur 2, and 8-Ball Deluxe beat Fireball Classic. So, finally was our other region, which for those that don't remember, the four manufacturers that were in the other region are Data East, Stern, Zakaria, and Game Plan. There were two upsets. Uh, the 10-seed Catacomb, which is a Stern title, beat the 7-seed Laser War, which is a Data East title, with 66.7% of the vote. And the 13-seed RoboCop, which is a Data East title, beat the four-seed Time Machine, which is also Data East, with 55.6% of the vote. So that one was very close, but I don't know if that one just... I haven't played RoboCop. I don't know if it just won because it's RoboCop, or... I thought... It's been a while since I've read up on RoboCop. I didn't think they made a whole lot, so maybe it's low-rated because a lot of people haven't really played it, and that affected its seed, but it's actually a better game than where it seeds at. I don't know. Uh, top seeds for the rest were Sea Witch, which is Stern, beat Galaxy, which is Stern, Quicksilver, which is Stern, beat Torpedo Alley, which is Data East, Andromeda, which is Game Plan, beat Fight 2000, which is Stern, Nine Ball, which is Stern, beat Big Game, which is also Stern, 
Stargazer, which is Stern, beat Lightning, which is Stern. And Farfalla, which is Zakaria, beat Monday Night Football, which is Data East. Those were the results. So this will be the round two matchups. Much, much shorter bracket now that we eliminated half of these games out of it. We will still be in the four regions, though. So in the Williams region, the number one seed Earthshaker will go up against the number nine seed Space Station. The number three seed Taxi will go against the number six seed Cyclone. The number two seed Black Knight 2000 will go against the number seven seed High Speed. That's going to be and a tough one f- for me to decide on right there. I like both of those I, games a lot. I haven't played High Speed, but maybe twice. So I'll 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 think about it because I also don't like uh, short-lasting upper play fields where you just sort of drain out of the upper play field right, right away. And Black Knight 2000s, it's not as bad as Black Knight about that, but it's not an upper play field you actually stay up on all that much. I don't know. I haven't decided yet, but I do lean towards Black Knight 2000. Yeah. And then the and the final one will be the number four seed Bonsai Run versus the number five seed Pinbot, which could be pretty rough. Yeah, it could be rough. I enjoy both those games. Mm-hmm. So Gottlieb region is going to be the number one seed is Haunted House, and that's going to face the number nine seed Arena. The number fourteen seed Genesis gets to face off against the number six seed Devil's Dare. I guess we'll see if the ugly black back glass can continue to hold its own. The number two seed Black Hole will be against the number seven seed Robo War. And the number four seed TX Sector will be against the number five seed Spirit. Bally's region will be the number one seed Elvira and the Party Monsters versus the number nine seed Medusa. That's going to be really sad for Medusa. I like Medusa, but Elvira and the Party Monsters is a classic. Yeah, I don't, you know, they're Medusa's a bet again, as it often is, Medusa's a better looking game, but Elvira and the Party Monsters scratches that. Uh, late 80s itch it's a lot more complicated rules now i think elvira's going to have it pretty handily but we'll see uh number three seed fathom will be against the number 11 seed skateball the number two seed centaur will be against the number seven seed flash gordon and well i think this one will be decisive the number four seed eight ball deluxe will be against the number 12 seed eight ball deluxe limited edition i'm going to go out on limb and say eight ball is going to win you know, I think so too, but I bet you it doesn't get 100% of the vote. Nothing <laughs> actually, nothing had 100% of the vote in the first round. Some games were close. Some had over 90, but nothing had 100. Uh, and okay, so the, if you, finally, if you, voted oh, for, if, for, if you vote for 8-Ball Deluxe, L-E, over 8-Ball Deluxe, send me an email with your uh, reasoning because I'd kind of like to hear it. Hey, I, I, you know what? They could say that it's it's cheaper, or maybe they like that weird little scoreboard box thing it sits on. That has to appeal to someone. Someone <laughs> in marketing came up with doing that for a game. And then I understand that they were left over and they just got used for pinball, but maybe there's some video game people that are like, you know what? That back box is awesome. That's what the future was supposed to be when it was 1982. That's what they told us the future <laughs> would look like. Sharp edges and... <laughs> And obscenely bright red screens. So <laughs> who, who knows? We'll, we'll see. Uh, finally, our other region, uh, which at this point, we actually do have all the manufacturers still in it, but there's only one game from each manufacturer except Stern, which occupies all the other slots. So the number one seed, uh, which is Stern's Sea Witch, will be against number eight seed, which is Stern's Quicksilver. The number three seed, which is Game Plans Andromeda, will be against the number six seed Nine Ball, which is a Stern game. Number two seed is Stargazer, which is Stern, will be against the number 10 seed Catacomb, which is also Stern. And the number 13 seed Robocop, which is Data East, will be against the number five seed Farfalla, which is Zachariah. 
So we will have a link on our in our show notes. Uh, we'll put a link up on Facebook as well uh, for people to be able to go and do a little Google survey. No sign-in required. And as few of these are left, it's going to take less than a minute for people to go vote. So we encourage you to go and vote. With that said, we've got a transitional topic here. Uh, it's sort of a pinball topic. It's also sort of a video game topic. It's all a matter of perspective. And so from my perspective, it's both topics. But I sat down and had an interview with Brad Baker, who is the founder of VP Cabs. They build virtual pinball cabinets. And they were recently on an episode of the ABC TV show Shark Tank. So I wanted to get with Brad and, and talk with him about uh, what VP Cabs does, uh, what it was like to be on the show, what their future plans are. And so let's go ahead and roll that interview. And then Tony and I, we're going to talk about what was said. Well, everyone, I'd like to introduce Brad Baker, the founder of VP Cabs, to the show. Brad, welcome to the Eclectic Gamers podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. This is awesome, guys. Well, our podcast that we uh, we deal with three topics overall, sort of pinball, video games, and tabletop. And you're very interesting because the concept of, of behind VP Cabs really spans two of those three categories, which is very rare for us. Mar our market's normally very distinct when we transition from topic to topic. But because of that, there are probably a number of listeners who aren't really familiar with what a virtual pinball cabinet even is. So could you give maybe a brief explanation about what your company does and you know, exactly what, what virtual pinball is? is especially in a cabinet sort of sense. Sure. So basically what we do is we take a traditional size pinball cabinet uh, and uh, we make our own pinball cabinets now, but originally we were taking old pinball cabinets that uh, weren't working anymore. They were abandoned uh, and we were replacing uh, the play field and the guts with uh, LCD or LED displays to simulate uh, classic pinball games and then the, the new Zen Pinball FX2 games. We'd run it off of like a high-end Windows gaming computer, um, you know, put in uh, buttons and controllers for the buttons and uh, real coin door and all that fun stuff. Basically allow you to uh, emulate or simulate uh, pinball games uh, in a real life-size pinball cabinet, but uh, without uh, all the moving parts of traditional pinball um, and the uh, ability to play lots of games in one machine. And I've, I've been over to your to your website, which for our listeners, if anyone wants to go and visit, it's virtualpinball.com. And I've seen you have a number of different products. So you're not just doing one particular cabinet size. Uh, one of the items I remember actually seeing this year at the Texas Pinball Festival, which I thought was really intriguing, was uh, was your Vertigo line. Uh-huh. And they, uh, because it's, its footprint is so small. So I was just sort of wondering in terms of the, the various cabinet models that you currently have, sort of what are the various target audiences for those, for the, for the Vertigo and, and the more traditional models? And I know you have like a mini cabinet as well. So you really have a number of different options for people to choose from. Yeah, we have four overall SKUs uh, in, uh, in our lineup. Uh, we have some variables with it in each one. There's some add-ons and things that you can change around. You mentioned our Vertigo. If you saw it at Texas, that was kind of the Vertigo's debut, just about three weeks before Texas, I actually drew the Vertigo on a napkin. It had been in my head for a while. Um, and uh, my favorite part about this business is the creative side. I really like to design things. Um, and uh, I don't know how to write CAD programs. So uh, I called my buddy, Greg Butcher, um, who is a, uh, a CAD programmer, and he's done all of our cabinet designs for us. And I said, dude, this thing is stuck in my head. It's been in my head for a while. I drew it on a napkin. Can you draw this thing? 
in CAD for me so we can cut it on our CNC machine. And I just want to see if it's going to uh, really play like I think it will, uh, if people are going to like it. Um, so we cut it. Everybody around the shop liked it. We threw a few together um, and uh, decided that we were going to take a bunch to Texas. So just in a couple weeks' time, we went from literally a napkin drawing to a finished product that uh, people were pretty much loving at Texas. It was kind of the hit of the show for us. So, and you mentioned the size. I think that was one big thing uh, for the Vertigo. Uh, it's 20 inches wide and 25 inches deep. Um, it is tall. It's 76 inches tall. But what's unique about it is it has a somewhat vertical play field. Uh, you know, it is tilted back a little bit further than an average like arcade game play field would be. It also has a DMD display, secondary display above the play field. So you can play a pinball game like uh, Pinball FX2 and still see the DMD above it. Uh, but also you can uh, download any of your favorite vertical MAME titles because it has a joystick and trackball and buttons, and you can play all your classic uh, arcade MAME games that you uh, that you like to uh, play. Um, and then you know we've got our mini, uh, which is a two-thirds scale. Um, traditional looking pinball uh, cabinet. Uh, it also has three screens, uh, a play field, a back glass, and a DMD. So you can uh, simulate uh, all the different uh, visuals on a traditional pinball cabinet. Um, and then we have our Wizard, um, which is our flagship model. It is our top of the line model. Uh, it, uh, it's it got uh, all the solenoids and shaker motor. Um, it's got a replay knocker. Uh, it has a, a working plunger. It has a, um, an analog nudge sensor. Uh, it's like an accelerometer that allows you to shake and tilt the machine, uh, uh, and it's got a RGB LED lights uh, right above the playfield that uh, actually are set off to uh, what the original game would have wanted. Uh, if you're playing a classic game uh, like Adam's Family or something like that, uh, you, it, the lights will flash when they were supposed to flash from the original game. It's all ROM controlled uh, and uh, works really cool. So that's uh, our flagship model. And then uh, just one step below that, we have another full-size model. That's the classic, uh, and the classic is is everything that the wizard is, um, just without the force feedback um, and the solenoids and the shaker and the plunger um, and the analog nudging. Um, it, uh, it allows someone to get into a full-size virtual pinball cabinet uh, at a reduced price, uh, same quality gameplay, same quality screens uh, and all that, just without the force feedback. Uh, what are the playfield screen sizes on on those units? So on our wizard and our classic, the main playfield uh, is a 40-inch diagonal display um, and uh, you know, they're mounted, uh, you know, kind of vertically in the cabinet there. The uh, back glass display in the full size is a 32-inch. Uh, and then our DMD display um, is actually a 15.6-inch uh, a display. Um, it's a full-color display, very similar to what the color DMD people use uh, for their displays when you're swapping out your display in your traditional pinball cabinet. All right. So, and then, so the all the SKUs except the Vertigo are the sort of the, they're the virtual pinball cabinet exclusively. And then the Vertigo is sort of a, is a main, combo style, if yeah, I'm understanding correctly. And, and, exactly. And, uh, you know, what, what is kind of cool about the Vertigo is, uh, you know, um, there's a lot of guys out there that make, uh, even commercially, that make MAME cabinets that are horizontal and they have four players and hundreds of buttons and uh, spinners and, and everything, and they're awesome. I mean, they play 30 or 40,000 of any emulated game you can imagine. But when you load a classic arcade game on them, you know, like Galaga or Donkey Kong or Pac-Man, anything like that, it, uh, it, it shrinks it down to a really small portion of the display because the display is horizontal. When you can turn the display vertical, um, you can play those classic arcade games uh, more in a native uh, format and get a nice, awesome image. Our our Vertigo has a 32-inch display, and it's like right there up in your face. Just so 
happens that that same vertical display uh, allows you to play all of your favorite pinball games too, um, and it just uh, looks gorgeous on all the the Zen Pinball FX2 games. Uh, just pretty phenomenal on the uh, 1080p display in there. Yeah, and I think uh, for a lot of people, a lot of video game people who have played virtual pinball, say on a PlayStation or Xbox or on their computer, the biggest thing that I've noticed different that you really get with with cabinet models is is the fact that you're working with a play field that is vertically oriented screen. So you don't have, there's just so much compression on the sides. Like when you're normally in Pinball FX2, you don't see much of the play field. A lot of the camera angles are actually set up. You can either zoom all the way out and the ball just looks like a teeny little dot, which is what I do. Or you can keep it so that the camera is constantly panning, but that isn't what naturally you're doing. Normally you just move your eyes. So what I've always found really fascinating about the, the cabinet style and what I like about them is that you actually get a full experience like you're actually looking at a real physical pinball table and you're, you're not dealing with that, the graphical limitations that you normally have because everything's sort of landscape style on normal monitors and televisions. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, kind of how that came about too is like in early 2013, we uh, – we contacted Zen. It was still just kind of a concept. Uh, you know, we, I wasn't building very many machines at the time. Uh, it was kind of, I, I still was running my other business full time. And, uh, my brother owns a couple large arcades here in Cincinnati and he kind of got the bug in me to build one of these machines mm-hmm. for him. So we started bugging Zen, uh, who, who makes pinball FX two and telling them how awesome it would be if they could do some sort of vertical cabinet support for us, uh, because their games look so good on the display. It took a while, but they actually invited us to the the 2013 San Diego Comic-Con, we were in Microsoft's uh, uh, main booth there, um, and it was kind of the debut of, uh, you know, uh, vertical Zen virtual pinball games, and uh, it was just a huge hit at the show. All the Microsoft people loved it. Uh, They actually ordered one for us to take to their Redmond headquarters uh, that I got to deliver and set up personally, which was really awesome. Um, They planted it right by a big halo statue and just need to do stuff like that. (laughs) Um, But, uh, so that's kind of how that all came about, and since then, uh, we've really worked closely with Zen to uh, uh, further the cabinet support with the the ability to relocate the DMD display, which came about a year ago, um, and uh, now backlash support where a backlash images can load for each game. So it's really coming along pretty awesome. Does the, uh, on your force feedback model, does the uh, Pinball FX2 support the force feedback or is that just the, the classic style like the visual pinball? Currently, that is just the classic style like the visual pinball. Um, now, the Zen does have one of our uh, wizard machines uh, in their possession that uh, we are working with them on, uh, working on all those features. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's definitely a goal on both sides to have that cabinet, that part of the cabinet support as well. That'll really add that final piece to the awesomeness of their games to be able to get the clicks and knocks and likes uh, or the lights and shakes and everything. That'll be really, really nice. Yeah. So uh, as a lot of people probably know, especially if they think they've heard VP cabs recently, you were on a a very recent episode of Shark Tank that aired. And um, spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen the episode, if they they haven't yet, they should have. So too bad. One of the uh, one of the sharks, Damon John, uh, famous for the FUBU clothing line, uh, did appear to reach a deal with you on the show. So I wanted to go ahead and delve into the episode a little bit on that because I know people have questions about what goes on behind the scenes on TV shows and all that. Sure, and, sure. You know, you're you're a big star now, so yeah, I don't know about uh, that. <laughs> so 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 given given all of that, given given what we got to see on on the show, 
Um, I guess just sort of first off, what was it like uh, being on Shark Tank? I mean, was it I'm sure it was stressful, but uh, in, in just in terms of the, the approach, how they, you know, what they edit sort of thing, uh, you know, that part where you, we really just see you walk out, give the give the initial pitch. They get to interact with the product then they sit down and then they say what they like or don't like about the proposals. Sure, sure. And, you know, um, we uh, we originally applied to be on the show two years ago um, and we got a call back. Uh, but uh, we didn't make it very far in the selection process. Um, and then this past summer, uh, we got a call from the producers asking us if we would be interested in applying again, uh, that they had been following us and uh, thought that we'd be a good fit for the show. So we thought, well, if they're calling us, then that must be a good sign. Um, so uh, we went through the application process again, which uh, is uh, a pretty long and, uh, and and kind of grueling process. I mean, it's not for the faint of heart. Um, I think they really want to uh, see how serious you are about uh, you know your business and being on the show. Uh, there's a lot involved. Uh, a lot of it is kind of like sworn to secrecy kind of stuff. Um, nothing strange or anything, but I I think just in general, TV shows have a lot of things that they don't like to be public knowledge. So, so uh, we made it uh, um, through the first few rounds and kept going further and further um, uh, in the selection process, and uh, um, finally uh, got the call that we were going to be on. So that was really exciting. We uh, taped the show last fall, and like uh, you know, the, the towards the end of fall. Um, so there was been quite a long wait that we've been keeping a lot of things secret, and that was really tough. Uh, that was probably one of the hardest yeah, things. I, I wondered. I wondered when they actually did the taping because I. I I didn't think I saw any of the vertigo in the lineup that they had in front of them. Yeah, thought, you know, hmm, uh, I, that would have been awesome to have the vertigo there. I think uh, it would have uh, uh, piqued a lot more interest. Um, even without the vertigo being on uh, there, um, a lot of people hit our site and our social media, and we really featured the vertigo heavily. And it's uh, it's it's been a really big hit for us, uh, the vertigo has. And, uh, you know, uh, it would have been great to have it on. But, yeah, the vertigo didn't really come into lo- uh, fruition until, like, uh, early March, uh, end of February. So uh, many months – uh, after we uh, actually recorded the show, so uh, so obviously we've got quite a stretch since you actually did the recording to to now. So it hasn't been as short of notice as everyone who watched might instinctively think. Uh, how ha- how has it been going working working with Damon on this? Uh, it's been really great. You know, I mean, uh, you're we we were in the tank for probably you know a little more than an hour, and of course they edited it down to you know the the twelve to fifteen minute spot there. Um, so not everything that you say and do gets uh, put on the air, but I really felt like uh, they did a great job showing the Sharks running up to play our machines. Uh, uh, both uh, Mark Cuban and Robert Herjavec had pretty awesome things to say about the machine, that they left a lot of that in the in the edit, which uh, was really great for us. Uh, uh, it's always nice to have endorsements of uh, people like that, uh, which is really great, especially Robert being a pinball guy. Um, you know, oh, he, yeah. He, he had like 10, some, I think Yeah, he, said. he had 10 machines, and uh, you know, he said, uh, I got to tell you, it feels great. It feels better than the, my machines at home, which uh, really floored me. You know, you kind of go in there uh, not knowing how they're going to react and uh, it kind of can make or break your business if you go in and they play it and they sit down and they say, oh, this is horrible. Uh, it's the worst thing I've ever done, uh, played before. Uh, then all of a sudden, oh, yeah. you know, you have no control over how uh, what they put on the air. And, uh, you know, so we it was a big risk going in there. Honestly, it's a newer technology. Uh, we had we knew that they probably had never heard of anything like it. Um, and uh, we uh, we uh, we were really, uh, really blessed uh, that uh, that they gave us some great favor there. Um, and. And uh, really surprised that Damon uh, took a shot at us. You know, it was uh, not the first shark that we would have thought that would have jumped on board. Uh, we kind of went in thinking that maybe Mark Cuban uh, being in the tech space would be interested. And he almost pulled the trigger. You know, he was really
really close. So we went back and forth a little bit that, uh, and, uh, you know, he just couldn't do it, um, because of the software side of things that we weren't as heavily involved with. Uh, but, uh, you know, Damon jumped out there and took a huge chance on us. Uh, and, uh, you know, of course you shake hands on a deal and then afterwards there's due diligence process that both sides get a chance to, you know, uh, look over, uh, everything, uh, and, uh, make sure that it truly is a good fit. Uh, you know, a lot of deals that, uh, get a handshake in the tank don't necessarily come to fruition afterwards. Uh, and, uh, we're really, really grateful to say that we did make a deal with Damon. Uh, and, uh, he, uh, he's been, uh, an awesome guy to work with. Uh, we met him out at, uh, the consumer electronics show in Las Vegas in January. And, uh, he took time and walked the show floor with us, uh, spent a lot of time together, uh, and, uh, you know, really got to know him well, and he got to know us. Uh, and, uh, I think, uh, you know, since then, uh, we've been to his offices a few times, uh, in New York city. And, uh, it's just, uh, it's been the beginnings of a pretty great, uh, business relationship. Excellent. So since the episode aired, I, I don't know again, because it's been only about a week as of this recording versus when that, when that episode was on television, but I don't know if you have any analytics in terms of, have you seen increased it, interest? I mean, it was a lot of exposure. So in terms of web traffic to, to your site, uh, sales themselves, I, I don't know if you have a sense of it yet or not, but I figured I should ask. Yeah, sure. No problem. You know, um, it's, it's kind of crazy. You know, we had a, a really big, uh, viewing party, um, at our church actually, and we had uh, over 300 people there and it was just awesome and uh, almost none of them knew the outcome so you know when we shook hands on that deal at the very end everybody really thought that every that, that I was going to go out without a deal so there's like this just the loudest roar and cheer it was just an <laughs> awesome feeling uh, it, it was uh, just really cool uh, to for that for everybody to finally see it and uh, it was weird for me to be able to say Damon's name finally I've spent so long uh, not being able to say anything it was, oh, yeah. it was weird to talk be able to talk about that I still catch myself wondering if it's okay for me to say anything you know it's kind of crazy. We, uh, we have had an insane amount of traffic to the site. I mean, uh, just, uh, it's, it's pretty insane. Uh, fortunately we use Shopify, um, for our, uh, website traffic and, uh, uh, it's funny. Shopify is the only like, uh, uh, host for websites that's never crashed during Shark Tank. Uh, they, they have a perfect record with the people that are on the show. We were with them anyways, just randomly. But, uh, you know, one of the first things that Damon's team uh, asked us uh, is, uh, who do you guys use for your web? Uh, they crash all the time. If you're not using Shopify. Shopify is uh, kind of got the market cornered uh, with uh, allocating servers. Um, so we were fortunate that our site was stable. Um, it did just what it was supposed to do. Um, it was a brand new site for us. We had just launched it about two weeks before the, the show aired. Um, and uh, there's a lot of really crazy components to make the selection of all of our games. I mean, you can go on and you can choose the style of graphics you want. You can choose the color of hardware that we do. And there's just literally hundreds and hundreds of choices. Um, if you look at all the games combined. So uh, we had to ask Shopify for some really special stuff and they worked with us really well. It was, uh, we've had a ton of traffic. Uh, our sales have gone up a lot. Um, you know, we, we have done quite a bit of sales since, uh, since Friday night when we, uh, when we originally aired, uh, and we're still getting, um, you know, uh, we probably got two to 300 emails within 24 hours of, uh, you know, of the show airing and they're just still coming in. So we're spending a lot of time right now on emails. You know, this is a product that most people, uh, aren't just going to put in the shopping cart and buy. They ask a lot of questions. They want to be educated on how it works and how they can go get their games, whether it be the games we include or how, how they go get their own games on the main side of things. So it's an educational type product that we have to spend time with each customer. So over the next few weeks, uh, you know, we'll be doing a lot of that. Uh, and, but it's, it's been great. Has there been one of the SKUs in particular that's been performing exceedingly well, or is it all pretty even across, across the various offerings that you have? Well, in the past, our bestseller, um, before 
before the Vertigo came along, the Wizard uh, was our bestseller. It is our most expensive, and uh, we I really never did know how that machine would do initially. Um, you know, when we were building it, uh, that we had so much time in, in building each one and a lot of a lot of additional parts and making it all work. And uh, you know, when we decided on a retail price for it, uh, we weren't really sure um, because it's expensive. It's eight thousand uh, dollars. You know, that's a lot of money. Uh, and uh, you know, uh, we were really surprised when we would start talking to people about our different machines. Uh, they would gravitate towards the wizard and it's uh it's just been uh relatively uh easy um sale uh, on the side of w- once people are already looking at spending four or five or six thousand dollars on one of our machines uh, they typically uh see the value and having all those extra features uh, so it's been a great seller for us now you bring in the wizard or the vertigo um and the the new vertigo um has exceeded our expectations like you know literally like i said it was a napkin drawing just uh, a couple months ago uh no idea if it would be accepted uh, in general, um, if it was too off the wall, if, if the vertical pinball play field was just way too uh, unconventional. But uh, I think the people are really loving the space saving uh, factor and then all the other uh, things that go along with it. And that machine is quickly uh, becoming uh, just a, one of our, our top performers uh, by far. It's uh, It's been pretty nuts. Uh, Vertigo is, it's, uh, we cannot, right now we can't make the, uh, the Vertigo fast enough. It's, uh, it's pretty crazy. Wow. So in terms of a future outlook here, uh, what are your future plans? Uh, are there any items, uh, areas, shows you're planning to go to that you'd like to discuss with us uh, where as VP cabs planning to expand its presence more? I mean, Texas was my first show to go to. Awesome. So, and you, you guys had a, had a, an excellent location. It was really easy to find and really easy to see the, the vertical lineups there in particular, cause they're in that nice little circle and there were people on them all the time. So I was just sort of wondering, uh, in terms of future, either, either future products or more likely just sort of future outreach efforts and such that you all are planning to do, uh, to further expand. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, uh, we do uh, a lot of trade shows, uh, pinball and arcade shows uh, mainly, um, and uh, some home shows, but mostly pinball and arcade. Uh, those have kind of been our way, our, our vehicle of getting uh, our product out there to the community. Uh, more and more uh, lately, you start to see pinball shows as now like a family-oriented show, which is just phenomenal. It's great to go to a show and see all those little uh, stools carried around by the kids. Um, you know, it's uh, it's you know, pinball shows didn't used to be that way. Uh, and it's uh, just awesome to see the families getting involved. Uh, so we've uh, used those shows as our platform uh, to kind of just uh, – it's an inexpensive way to market and get your product in people's faces. Uh, most of the time, people that buy our machines really want to try them out first, which is totally understandable. It's something that's not you know the norm in the pinball world. Uh, so uh, we do a lot of shows. Uh, we do uh, anywhere between 12 and 15 pinball shows a year. Um, Texas is uh, – the Texas Pinball Festival is uh, an awesome show. Um, it's one of the – the best in the country for sure. Uh, you picked a good one to be your first pinball show. It's a it's a great show. We have a new show that we have never been to before coming up in a few weeks. That's in Atlanta, the Southern Fried Game Room Expo. Uh, we'll be there. We uh, we're doing Pintastic New England uh, near the Boston area again this year. That is uh, uh, its second year. We, we were there last year for its first year. The show it was a great show. Uh, so this year we decided to be the uh, headline sponsor of the show. Uh, we uh, basically are giving away two of our uh, mini 
many uh, pinball machines, all tricked out. Uh, the shows give uh, the the show sponsors are giving those away uh, as prizes for uh, basically raffle entries for bringing a bringing a pinball machine, bringing an arcade game, um, and then some other stuff they've got going on. So uh, we're really excited about that. That's going to be another huge show this year. It's a great family oriented show. Um, and then uh, we'll have a presence at the Replay FX show in Pittsburgh. Uh, we do the York, Pennsylvania show. Uh, and then two weeks ago, we were just at the Allentown uh, Pinfest show. Uh, uh, basically, any show we can get to so far, Texas is as far west as we've gone. But we're really trying to reach out even further and get to the West Coast as soon as we can as well uh, to just uh, branch out further. So for any of the listeners that are int- actually interested in acquiring one of these one of these cabinets, uh, what options are there? I know you've got Pinball Star Amusements as a distributor, and then it looked like they can do the orders directly off the VP Cabs website, which is at virtualpinball.com. Uh, are there any other venues that you would recommend if, I, I don't know, like an in-person option for people or, or anything like that? Well, um, on the website, we do have a dealer locator page. Uh, we are, uh, I think, a little over 20 or so dealers right now altogether. Uh, we've got some in tech. Texas. Uh, we've got a lot of, through the Midwest. Um, uh, we have a lot of like billiard and home and leisure type stores that uh, that carry some of our products. Yeah, I think um, I saw you guys uh, had Aminis, which is pretty big here in the Kansas City area. Yeah, Aminis is one of our first dealers. They came on board in 2014, um, and uh, they have some beautiful showrooms. Uh, and uh, it's a great place for us to be able to display our games that people can go check out and see. Works really well. Um, of course, uh, you can call us, uh, uh, and uh, you know. Uh, we can uh, help you out with any questions or anything like that. Uh, I'm usually the, the one answering the phone uh, as far as the sales side of things goes. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, the website is a lot more informative now. We've really upgraded the website a lot. So uh, uh, it's got a lot of great info on the website. There's some videos. You can see uh, the Vertigo in action. You can see a couple videos of the Wizard in action and how our how all the force feedback kind of works uh, and, uh, and how the Pinball FX2 games works. Uh, and then uh, we have a new tab on our website, something kind of cool, new, exciting that we're working on uh, with Damon uh, is uh, a, a coin op version of the machine. We're, we're working really hard on uh, getting some licensing together and uh, and pushing to be able to make an actual redemption and or coin op version of, of the virtual machine, which is uh, kind of uh, something we're really excited about to tap. Oh, so operators could use it. That's the goal. You know, uh, we, we really feel like, uh, you know, years ago, um, pinball was kind of totally removed from like the Dave and Busters and the Chuck E. Cheese and uh, like the, the big entertainment type destinations, uh, even, uh, even lately they're, they're they're starting to leave like even Disney's uh, uh, getting rid of their pinball machines and you're not seeing them as much anymore uh, and a big part of that is it's just really hard to find technicians to service them especially in a location with as much traffic and as much wear and tear as they get our machines really solve that problem because there just really is no major moving parts in the machines so that they can work just like a video game would in a Dave and Buster's or Chuck E. Cheese but allow kids and families and people to play different type of pinball games and it'll give the operator the option to change out the games or have the customer be able to choose for multiple games. Uh, so uh, we're really excited to try to uh, you know further develop that, uh, that platform and try to get this out there in public places as well. Awesome. Well, you actually covered all the questions I had for you. So I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the Eclectic Gamers podcast and taking the time out of your very busy schedule to, uh, to talk with me about all of this because it's, it's fascinating. And I think the listeners are really going to enjoy hearing about it. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you guys having me on. Uh, uh, I love talking about uh, pinball and virtual pinball. And uh, it's just great to, uh, to have a new audience. Uh, and uh, I appreciate you guys letting us come on. Well, that was my interview with Brad Baker, and I thank him again for sitting down with me and taking the time to chat. 
And so now you and I will have a chat, Tony. Uh, what did you think of the uh, discussion that we had with Brad? I enjoyed it. Um, I remember looking at the VP Cap stuff when we were in Texas. And while I didn't play any of them, they all looked really nice. And I really, really liked the uh, Vertigo uh, space-saving little main cabinet super cabs. And I'm pretty happy with it. I, th- I think it sounds like they're going to go places. Yeah, I, I I wanted to emphasize the vertigo with my discussions with him because I also remember those from Texas, and I I did not uh, I did not play them either. I actually I have a main cabinet that I built, and then my dad and I built a virtual pinball cabinet as a separate project. So I actually already have those things. I did not know at Texas that the vertigo was also a main cabinet. I thought it was just. Uh, digital pinball cabinet. So I didn't find out till after the fact about that it was a two-in-one combo. But what caught my eye anyway was the fact that it took up so little floor space. Yeah, it's really tall, but I just, in terms of of space, and that's always the big frustration for me, especially with pinball, is if you've got limited space, it is a big pain to try and have much in the way of games, especially if you want them all in the same room, just because a lot of houses are not laid out in a convenient way to really be, oh, yeah, you wanted to have an arcade with really long tables. Here you go. Here's a house that works for that. Yeah, uh, in my at my place, I could get, I've done, I, I've kind of mapped it out and walked around and looked, I could get two maybe three machines if I kicked everybody out of where my computers are set up, but that's it. It'd still be a pretty tight squeeze with more than one or two in there. So something like the Vertigo with such a small footprint would actually work pretty well in a situation like mine. Yeah. And I, uh, I have a, I have a rec room that I've, I turned into a game room a while ago because it wasn't being used for anything else. And it's, it's very long, but it's also very narrow. So while I have a really long wall where I line up my pinball machines, I can't line up pinball machines on the other side. There would be no space to, to actually be able to do that. I, I don't yeah, even think it's I hard could enough to walk around right now when somebody's playing a machine to get yeah, around behind no, them. It's, it's incredibly narrow. It's like, I don't know, maybe houses in the early eighties, they thought everyone wanted to have single lane bowling alleys downstairs. Cause I swear it's long enough to do that, but, but it is not wide. Uh, so anyway, the, uh, v- virtual pinball cabinets, I always think, uh, are really cool hybrid technology, hybrid of video game technology. And in the case of their, their, ultimate model that they that he spoke about that Brad spoke about and like the version that I put together for my own home use uh, you can emulate a lot of the physical nature of the traditional pinball experience and that's what where the force feedback comes into play so as you noted as he no, as Brad noted they put in solenoids which are a major feature of uh, pinball machines that you those are what move the flippers and and all of that stuff and so you can actually still use solenoids in a digital one. Even though they don't need the solenoid to work, you can get that force feedback. Uh, I used contactors in mine, which kind of offer the same sort of clicky uh, effect. Uh, the shaker motor that he puts in, you can use shaker motors. Uh, the LED light show, because normally there are flashers and stuff to let you know when the ball is going to come out of the right the right hole so you know where to look when after it gone through a subway system. So it's, it's never identical in the sense that it'll never be physical pinball. But for a lot of people, I think it's an excellent way to get a really good pinball experience. I, I try not to use the, the word virtual versus real, I, and I, sometimes I do, but it's really virtual versus physical in my view because pinball, is a, it's a set of rules. It's the idea of flippers with a ball that you keep in play and try and accomplish objectives. That it uses physical physics or digital physics is just a condition. 
it doesn't, I mean, it'd be like if you took a pinball machine and you were to play it on the moon, it would operate differently, but it'd still be pinball. The big problem, though, that uh, I think exists with pinball on a digital front is in that normal experience, your TV is sort of sideways. You don't get to see the full length of a pinball field easily because TVs aren't designed, monitors aren't designed for you just to flip them 90 degrees and play. And these cabinets solve that problem. And when games like Pinball FX2 put in cabinet support for products like VP cabs, you actually get, it's all, it's, it's so much more enjoyable to play that way. I think it would shock people just how much easier it is to actually follow the ball and stuff. Cause as I noted in the interview, I play zoomed out way out because I don't, I can't stand to have the camera pan. It just irks me. So, but what I'm watching is the ball, the size of a BB and it's really hard to follow. Whereas if you play physical pinball, you know, pinball is actually a fairly sizable object. <laughs> it's uh, you might lose it in the f- strobing psychedelic flashes that they do to screw you up. But, oh, yeah, but it's, not, it's not that the ball's too small. That's never been the problem. So, so that's something that I really like that. I think the cabinet experience is very ideal to deliver. What did you think about uh, the the part where Brad went in about uh, their work on a coin op virtual pinball? Now that really interested me. I am. Um, I don't know why I'd never thought about it as something you could do. I just never thought of a coin op virtual, but I can see where it would solve so many problems for operators because it would let you have multiple games. It would let you have, you know, like the new interesting stuff, like the stuff the uh, the Zen people have put out with all the all the things going on that you can, that cannot be done on a physical table. It can only be done in a virtual table. It would let you put those games out there and the difference in maintenance. I mean, there would be so much less maintenance on it. I just had never thought of it. I think it's a brilliant idea. And if they can get it working out, I think it might be something you'll see a lot of in the future. Yeah. What I, I also think one of the, the neat things about it is when you've got like that arcade environment where, you know, they, they've complained about the need for technicians. And as we see when we go to our monthly pinball tournaments, there is work being done all the time on these machines. They go down all the time. I have a lineup of of five games. I only have four in the game room. I am tinkering on the pinball machines all the time. And I have less than a half a dozen. And I'm not playing them constantly. It's just, it's pinball. It's physical. There are going to be things that go wrong. But what you can do is besides that, with a digital cabinet, you can have a location that might be like, eh, pinball doesn't make enough money. I don't really want to have to dedicate, you know, 200 square feet to several pinball machines. One cabinet with a bunch of games on it, though, gets around that where people could drop in there 75 cents, for example, or dollar, and then cycle and choose which pinball game they want to play and then get to play that game. The operator makes money. They avoid all that breakdown scenario. And you are able to contain, like in a main cabinet, you're able to contain a whole lot of different uh, tables all in one holder so that it's not like, well, okay, I really like Game of Thrones, but I want the new Ghostbusters and I better get a Hobbit as well. And that's always going to be the challenge for physical pinball because now all of a sudden you consumed all the space because you needed three separate cabinets. So in a way it gets at, you know, that notion of kind of what highway pinball supports with the playfield drop in that'll that their full throttle will allow for their alien uh, pinball or uh, you know going further like the P3 system those are obviously physical solutions for physical pinball 
which will ap- appeal to purists definitely. But I'm I'm very curious about whether or not uh, the casual sort of arcade audience would embrace the idea of digital pinball in coin op. Uh, I think it. I th- I think it could work. Uh, there are a lot of people. I think more than maybe the 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 physical pinball sort of the pinsiders will. I'll I'll describe them as. I think pinsiders kind of think everyone who likes pinball got acquainted with it because they played it physically. I had a little bit of background in terms of physical pinball, but not much. Almost all of my pinball growing up was actually playing it digital, and so that's what I remember. I love the idea of physical pinball, but I because of that, I don't have this deep-seated bias against digital pinball. I still actually put in more hours on digital pinball than I do physically because I can, you know, you can load it up on a phone, you can load it up on a tablet, you can load it up on a console. I don't have to go downstairs when I'm tired of standing after two hours. I can sit on my butt and keep playing digital pinball. And I don't feel weird like I'm cheating, sitting in the chair there. Not that I can nudge at all when I'm in a chair anyway. <laughs> so, you know, it solves all that. So that's yeah, that's I, why I, I think I there's potential. Playing like lunch break a lot and this and that. I'll knock out some games on at my lunch and such. I wonder how the licensing of older tables like Pinball Arcade's licensing has done, how that would work for a coin-op virtual pen cab setup. Um, I don't know. That's something I'm sure they've got smart people and lawyers looking at, but it's just a curiosity that I was thinking about. Yeah, I don't I don't know either. And honestly, I it may be best for I mean, again, this is that's their field. That's Brad's area to to figure out. Uh, it may be best for them to stick with something that's sort of digital space only, like Zen, and not go the pinball arcade route. Uh I'm I would love to have pinball arcade in my virtual cabinet because my the thing I like to do digitally the most is to learn the rules of the physical games so that I can go to a tournament and not be blind on an older machine. So I'll have some experience. I, I mean, it's not going to play identical. Uh, you know, anyone who's used uh, visual pinball version nine knows the physics are not at all real world physics, but the rules are still there. Cause you're using ROMs that are, that are the same software. So that's, that's very helpful to me to just get down. So I don't feel like, okay, I don't know. You know, like when I went up to the, the uh, Batman begins or whatever, whichever the dark Knight table that they have, at our Pizza West location, I'd never played it before. The first time I had to play it in a tournament, I had one game before that, and I didn't know what to shoot for. Um, and so you got the little card there that you can read to give you some tips. But I would have been more comfortable had I actually practiced it virtually first. So that's what I like about Pinball Arcade. Uh, but if you just go and say, "Okay, well, you know, you got all that weird licensing there because those are the physical machines, and they're giving digital rights, and what are the rules on that?" You skip all that and just turn to Zen, like what VP Cabs is putting in already, and say, okay, you guys are making digital only tables. You know, they're digital from scratch from you guys. Let's just do this coin op and we pay a license for your stuff. It's all kind of clean because it's already a video game space sort of concept. And then also that way the machine isn't seen as a, I guess, I don't, I don't know if threat's the right word, but it doesn't come across as a threat to physical pinball because Misplosion Man ain't ever going to be a physical machine. That's just got the way that's just going to live in the virtual space uh, as it should. So maybe that's the way you go with on location is, as maybe it doesn't do pinball arcade. Maybe it's just things like Zen vi- video yeah. game versions only. Uh, that would make sense. Know. 
That would make sense. It's just one of those things. I know, I mean, a lot of people, there's a lot of old classic games that people love, but they're rare and they're hard to find. And I could see where it would it would be interesting to people. But as for an on-location thing, I can definitely see we're just going with something a bit easier to deal licensing-wise. It's going to be the way to go. Right. We'll just have to see what they decide, I guess. Right. And as they, I think as the VPCAB site notes and such, I mean, they'll help you out with – you see, the rules are, you know, if you're doing home-use stuff, there are different rules than what they can sell already installed on the machine. So if you want to have old experiences, there are fan-developed uh, tables that are trying to be those old classic tables. And then the, the rights are different where if you as a home user want to start putting stuff on just for your own use. And so there are options for people who want to to do that with the old tables. But yeah, I think the coin off side might, might just stay cleaner uh, where the licensing is easier because it's only working in the digital space. But it's just a guess. But uh, we wish Brad all the best. Uh, and thanks again so much for interviewing with us. And it's so good to hear that things have been going so well since the Shark, the Shark Tank episode aired. But let's go ahead and transition formally now uh, to our secondary topic, which is video games. We really only have one video game item we wanted to discuss. Um, Tony, you get full credit for this because you actually picked up first that the announcement hit for Civilization VI. Yeah, I am I'm an old school Civ addict. Um, I won't say I'm so old school. I didn't start with Civ. I actually started with Civ two, but I've played every Civilization game since two. And it is very much a case of one more turn with me. I, I will just play and play and play and play and play and play. I've got hundreds and hundreds of hours into every one of the Civ games. So with Six, I'm interested in Six when the announcement came. I know there's not a, been a lot of changes announced, but <clears throat> Civ never has a whole bunch of major changes. As far as I'm concerned, it plays about the same, and I think it is still the king of the four X's. Um type gameplay. I mean, nobody beats Civ at what it does. Uh, I do like that the uh, screenshots that came out with it, they just released three screenshots uh, initially, and it has a kind of a cartoony look, but I like the, they set it up so the you can see the wonders on the map now, so you don't have to delve deep into the cities to find out which city has wonders that you want, so you want to take it, and which cities don't. Uh, and they're also making some adjustments to how the armies work. Uh, they started with, I think it was with five. Uh, it might have been four, but I think it was five where they had only one unit per tile, so you couldn't stack massive armies anymore. Yeah, yeah, it was five. <clears throat> okay. And they've got, they, they're, they're still, uh, they're expanding on that one unit per tile design. Uh, where it's still you can only have one unit per tile, but you can now take support units and embed them with your tiles. So you can support an anti-tank support with your infantry. So your infantry have some better anti-tank power, or you can put a warrior with your settler so, you, so it moves as a single unit and stuff like that. And you can also put together two units of the same to form a more powerful unit. Um, I like that because that was one of the big things that... Well, I had no problems with the change to the one unit per tile. It made it a lot harder to support your army because you couldn't have uh, a lot of, you know, artillery and anti-aircraft and this and that around as you moved in and out. So I'm I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I uh, I've been a, a player of Civilization for for a long time. I did start with the first Civilization. 
I don't know if I actually have the most time in that version, but it, it feels like it it was the case. And Civilization is always the first uh, game that comes to mind for me when I think of turn-based strategy. Uh, it's gone through a lot of growth. It's always sort of kept the same basic concepts, but it, it's gone through a, a lot of very healthy evolution, I think, over the years. Uh, you and I actually played quite a bit of Civilization Four. Uh, I've played more Civ Four than I have Civ Five, in fact. And I don't know if I played much Civ Two and th- I know I didn't play much Civ Two and Three. I can't even remember if I played Civilization Two or not. I think I did, but it all it all kind of blends because there are so many spinoff sort of versions of Civilization, and Alpha Centauri kind of blends in that too. <laughs> so, yeah, they, they all. When you go back, they all kind of blend in. But yeah, we had a. A year-long play-by-email game of Civ Four. I think that's the only Civ that had the play-by-email option, where you where you just where you just emailed the save back and forth to each other for the turn. Yeah, very tedious. Uh, you know, nowadays I, I would definitely it. be. Oh, it was a lot of fun, uh, but. Nowadays, that would be sort of something where they would keep track of it in a in an online server somewhere <laughs> instead of having yeah, to do. You know, it was the just tedious part was having to do the email and such. Yeah, and, and so. set it up, and but it, it worked out pretty well. It was like I said, it, it was enjoyable. I, I quite liked it, but I put a lot of Civ Four time in. I've got over two hundred hours into Civ Five. I don't know if I had more time than that in Civ Four, probably, um, because by the time Civ Five came out, I had all the family stuff to deal with, so I didn't have quite the the play time I used to, but. I always love the Civilization games. Yeah, I I played Civ Four a lot more than than Five. I just started playing a lot of their game types when Five came out. I did get it though, and uh, Six will be on my list to be a Steam purchase for me. Uh, probably be waiting for a decent sale on it uh, in my case again. But I always have respect for the Civilization games. I'm just kind of wondering who's gonna now that Leonard Nimoy is dead. Who's gonna do all the the, the voicing for all the science trees? Well, I. Did he do the voicing in five? I know he did four. I think I, five was somebody else. I, in five, I probably muted it because I didn't want to hear it. <laughs> it didn't matter anymore. But yeah, I'm going to pick it up. It's 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 on my must-own list uh, of stuff that's coming out. I mean, the only other thing on that list right now, something that I'm going to get is Overwatch. I'm going to buy Overwatch. Oh, have you decided to? Okay. I'm going to. I'm not pre-ordering it. I'm not going to get it immediately, but I am going to end up getting it. I I know. Because every once in a while I sit down at the the computer and it's like, what do I want to play? And it's like, I want to play Overwatch. I can't play Overwatch. Yeah. Well, it sounded like you were very much leaning that way as of our last podcast. I myself. Their beta did a very good job of locking it in. Um, It was a I don't know. I could not sit down and tell you why I enjoy that game as much as I do. Or I could tell you, but it it doesn't really explain. It's like, oh, I like the balance of the characters and how each character's this and that. It It's just something about that game just makes you want to play more. At least it made me want to play more. It, it's not a game where I could where I was sit down, I played, and I quit, and it'd be like, okay, I might play that again some later. It was I played, and it's like, oh, oh look, I've been playing for three and a half hours, and I have to go to sleep so I can go to work in the morning. And I haven't had a game do that to me in a while. Well, it's got an addictive quality to it, and that's and that's really all it takes. Um, I I did enjoy what I saw with it, but especially with now that I've started Witcher, I. I don't know how long I'm going to be playing. I, I have a fear. I shouldn't say fear because I'm hoping I really like it. But I have a fear that Witcher 3 is going to take me longer than Far Cry 4. I've read that Witcher 3 is 
long, like Fallout 4 long. So I'll probably be working away at that for a while. And I still have another game I got back at Christmas that I haven't started. So that's going to be, I just, I try not to let the backlog of ownership be too too much. So I just, I generally just don't buy when I start to have a pile of things to do. And I've just been working since the fall, just not working hard enough because I've been playing more pinball than I used to. And that just takes up time. So it's yeah, it's, it's terrible. It's so terrible. Do I play pinball or do I play video games? I just don't know. It's a hard life. I live a hard life. It's a hard knock life for you. Just for me. Yep. Yep. Well, speaking of hard knocks, let's switch to the third topic. That was a weird transition. I don't know why I said yeah, it that no, way. That, yeah, I don't know. That that yeah. transition, that, that, that one because, just kind of bounced. Because tables little... are hard and we knock on wood. There you go. Boom. Yeah. Tabletop. Okay. Yeah, Tabletop. All right. And you've got something to introduce for us on that, don't you? Yes, I do. Uh, last episode, we spent a decent amount of time talking about the uh, Kickstarter for the Threadbearers uh, RPG. And I sat down last week and interviewed Stephanie Bryant, the creator of Threadbear, and we are going to go ahead and play that now for you guys. This is an interview on the Eclectic Gamers podcast. I'm talking with Stephanie Bryant, creator of the Threadbear RPG that we spoke about last episode. How are you doing today, Stephanie? Great. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, it's nice to have you. Well, why don't you tell me a little bit about Threadbear? I know when I found it, uh, before our last episode, I was super excited because the really, really evil part of me just had this mental image of post-apocalyptic Toy Story in my head the second I read the description. <laughs> That's really not far off, although um, I'll, give the, I'll give the elevator pitch. Threadbare is a game where you play a broken toy in a broken world. It's post-apocalyptic, there are no humans left, and the main action in the game is... Things break, you repair them or you upgrade them. Sometimes your repairs make them different, sometimes better. And that is like the, the main thing that you do. Um, and you build relationships and friendships and so forth. Um, it's a very low combat game. Uh, in most variations of the, like the tone of the game, you, the GM can't present a conflict that you can't talk to so like i can't if i'm the gm i can't have a you know pack of wild dogs show up to tear you apart um you have to be able to somehow reason with them or reason with somebody who's controlling them or somehow get around that without getting into a fist fight well it uses the apocalypse world uh base engine does it not yes it does it's uh two six-sided dice plus your modifier yeah, I've I've played a lot of Apocalypse World. I, re- I really like it. I like the narrative play, and I like how you're setting it up so it's not just going to be a, oh, you have to fight it out now. It's you can talk, you can play, you can – it's more about the people and the interactions. I like the narrative play style. Exactly. I do too. Um, it's very much uh, – it, it's where I live creatively in, in terms of gaming these days, which is not to say that I, I can't be a killer GM. It's just that the, the part that I enjoy the most is – is, you know, we've, we've come up with a clever solution or we've come up with a way to convince somebody to, to help us rather than harm us. Yeah, I've kind of moved more into that narrative kind of style myself over the years from the crunchy beginnings. Now, what brought about Threadbare originally? Where did you originally come up with the idea? So several years ago, I wrote and published a comic book for knitters. 
called Handed Heroes. And uh, we only got four issues out, but I wrote scripts for eight issues total. Issue number eight had the heroes going into this sort of underworld afterlife kind of space. And I wanted that to be different and strange. And I also wanted it to be sort of knitterly. And when I wrote that script, there was this, there was like a war between the hard plastic toys and the soft sided toys. And so it was like the mechas versus the softies. And there was kind of this, there was a lot of conflict and so forth. And a few years ago, um, like four years ago, I started thinking of that setting and I, I kind of liked it. I, I, I dig that it's, it's the aesthetic is stitch punk, this kind of broken and put together and maker space kind of, uh, hack together ideas. And I started to kind of think about that in terms of, well, what if I made a game about that? And I started putting things together. I started, I started out with the Mecca and softies actually being separate factions and being very hostile towards each other. In the course of playtesting, we found out that the Mechas and softies really didn't have uh, any sort of like reason to be in conflict. Just the world itself, um, the way that it seems to present itself, there isn't a resource that they could fight over. And so there isn't really any, any teeth in that, um, in that conflict. So I got rid of it and made them like, they're just different types of toy and, and they ended up being, a little softer and a little bit more fun. Well, that sounds good. Now, how did the socks come into it? <laughs> Originally, the socks were were an NPC class. They were they were not a playable character uh, format, and they were enslaved by the the softies. So they were like these unfilled softies, and the softies were they were very patrician about it. You know, they were really just taking care of these poor, sort of weaker class of creature, and they were they were quote, helping them. And of course, this is a much darker tone to the game than, than what eventually happened. Well, during playtesting, you know, I'm like, hey, let's play my game, you know, and one of my friends says, okay, can I be a sock? And I was like, oh man, James, they're, they're, they're weaker than everybody. They have like, like half the stats. Are you sure? He's like, yes, yes, I am. And so I, I, you know, came up with a few mechanics for him to play a sock. And it turned out that by himself, socks terrible. They're like, like they had, they had fewer of everything, and they even had sort of like a, a maximum number. Like there was advancement you could add to your to your stats, but socks had they capped out much earlier than anybody else could, and uh, so they were always weaker. But if you got them in pairs, and if you like power played for certain benefits that relied on being paired up and relied on your ability to talk to other socks. They could just destroy everything. I mean, they were, they were extremely <laughs> efficient once they were paired up. And so I, I kind of liked that. And um, that's why one of the, one of the benefits of being a sock is that anytime you, anytime you help somebody else, there's a little bonus. Anytime you help another sock, the bonus is much higher. Well, that's that. I like that. The pair of socks is always stronger than a single sock. I like that a lot. Yeah. And I saw on the uh, when I was going through the rules after I after I got access to them that like you do the almost uh, kind of hive mindy with some of the uh, mecha if you like little army men. Yes. Everything runs as parts, so you can be just like a squad of little army men. Yes, 
uh, it's called Bunch of Little Guys. It's a form of uh, it's a character form. So you are basically a squad of army men. You might be the you might be the barrel of monkeys. Uh, you could be like just a jumble of Lego uh, minifigs. Um, one of the forms that I, I hasn't been released yet, but I'm I'm considering and, and I'm kind of working on is building blocks. So it's not like you're a bunch of Legos. It's Lego minifigs specifically. But yeah, you're like you're a bunch of, of little very similar uh, toys. Um, you know, I've got I've got like a bag of, of plastic dinosaurs that work for this. I've got probably three hundred miniatures from the reaper uh bones line <laughs> that are they're all unpainted so they're pretty much all alike you know oh that sounds like that sounds like my model collection it's like 90 percent unpainted it's like oh that's cool i can't wait to paint that up yeah. five years later it's still unpainted it's still unpainted uh, i've got like buckets of those at this point um so you know i'm like okay well so you could take those, you could take like a jumble of those and make that your character if you wanted. And they have sort of, the, it's a little bit like a hive mind. You could have maybe a, a lieutenant or something if you wanted. And they they can, one of their you know special features is that when they roll a six, uh, it's like one of their guys got lost doing a recon. So they get a little extra information, but of course they lost one of their, one of their guys. And, um, and that's a, and that means that they're like down at hit point, uh, essentially. So it's kind of like the uh, the parts on the like the arms, legs, heads, whatever on all the other toys. That's how they lose as the group. They lose. Oh, we lost Billy. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Our minesweepers down. Um, <laughs> yeah. And and that uh, I, I don't know if you covered that in your in your last podcast, but uh, one of the unique features of the Threadbare is that your hit points are extremely concrete. So if you take a hit, if you lose something, if you like lose a, a, a hit, quote, a hit point, unlike in other games where it's like, oh, it's kind of like an abstraction of damage and luck and, you know, you might not actually be bleeding, you know, that kind of thing. No, if you lose a, a if, you, if you take damage in Threadbare, it means you have physically lost, you know, lost the ability to use that part. Either it fell off or it broke beyond, you know, immediate repair uh, or immediate use. Or, um, or, or, you know, like we lost Billy, we lost one of our guys. Um, and that makes Threadbare, uh, rather interesting because you can, um, you know, when you go to repair that part, you could end up upgrading it to the point where it now has a new move. It might be something different. You might've replaced an arm with like the crane off of an, off of a broken toy or, you know, a, a, a non-toy or something like that. Um, so you can like, you can really like play with that. And of course, since Threadbare characters don't die, uh, you can lose pretty much everything and just be like, like a, a ball of stuffing floating along. And I, I love this image because of course, then you would just be picking stuff up as like, that's how you are repairing yourself. Kind of like a, a Katamari Damacy, you know, like just you know, picking up like, like, paper clips and whatever is around like the just, like just whatever you, yeah i saw the little short story thing on your website where it was the uh dump truck with the baby doll head looking yeah. to replace a broken wheel yes yes <laughs> exactly that came out of a friend of mine wanted to play a um she wanted to play a rag doll who was like really good about um she was really good at repairing people and repairing toys 
and her like her currency was secrets so if you came to her for repair you better have a secret to trade uh it was it's very like kind of kind of dark and a little bit sneaky of her so yeah, I like how this, it seems like this game can really run the gamut from something that's, you know, it's fun and nice and this and that, or it can get some pretty seriously dark if the GM and players really want it to go that way, if you want to, if you're willing to take it dark. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, with, with, with the damage system, it seems like you could get into some serious body horror type stuff. And- yeah. And, and that is actually one of the, that is, that is probably the big content note. There's a lot of things in this game that, that stay light or they can, can stay light. But, but body horror and, you know, like you've lost a part, you gained a part, you know, you're stitched back together. If that's a thing that wigs you out, this is not the game for you. Because that is pretty much one of the core mechanics of the game. And I, like that, that's up front. It's practically on the, on the tin. Um, because I, I just, it, you know, like for me, I'm like, I understand content warnings. I understand triggers. Like, I don't want somebody to get into playing this game and then suddenly say, oh, my God, I can't possibly, you know, literally lose my arm. That's terrible, you know. Um, and so I, I, I like to I like to make that content visible. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I can understand that because I can see that. I mean, it's pretty obvious looking at your art, which I love the art, by the way, the uh, the, the, the the bear with the purple eye patch replacement part of this thing i i I love all that art that's uh uh the art uh, was done by emily block a few years ago when i was uh when this was a much more violent game um actually one of the because it's been you know the the combat has been taken almost completely out uh the art is one of the things that i'm funding uh, with the kickstarter is we're going to have all new art and it's going to be a new artist because emily's not available um, but it'll still have that sort of feel of like that stitched together, you know, kind of, um, punk feel to it. Yeah. I, but I love that art too. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it was the first thing that caught me when I yeah. saw it, I was going through the, uh, I was going through you with Kickstarters. Oh, you might like this looking for stuff, yeah. uh, like I normally do. And, I, and it caught my, I'm like, Ooh, this looks fun. <laughs> Because, <laughs> like I said earlier, my very first thought was, "Okay, this is this seems like post-apocalyptic Toy Story." I just, yeah, because yeah, I mean, with the all the uh, uh, the different toys and this and that, and yeah, it's and then even then working with the uh, the whole even without combat, the friendship and the working together for stuff. It's just, it just seems like a great game. If you play it right. I mean, I've got two little girls and it seems like something they'd like to play with toys. I know their toys are real and this and that. And And how old are they? Um, I've got an eight year old and a four year old. Yeah. So So the four year old's a little young, but the eight year old's getting right into that group. Yeah. And one of the things that I've found is that eight is about the youngest age that, that appreciates this game because much younger than that, and they do not need rules to roleplay. Little kids don't need rules and books to roleplay. They roleplay already. They are just fine telling stories with their with their toys without having Fredbear. Fredbear is for their parents to figure out how to play. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like we got old, so now we have to have rules to make sure we can have fun when we play. <laughs> Terrible, like, like relearning how to play. You know how to play make believe. It's just it's bizarre. 
Um, well, if yeah. I just took my models and played around on the table, everybody would look at me weird. But if I have the rule book saying that, oh, I, oh, you're playing a game, that's completely fine. Yeah, right. So what you need to do <laughs> is put the rule book out there, and then they'll just play with the models anyway. <laughs> <laughs> now, for the big question is, which of the character types is your favorite? Oh, wow. Um, you know, we already talked about a bunch of little guys. I really like them because they're, they're different. Um, I... I love how the carnival toy plays. Not a lot of people take it because it's a, it's a little weird. Um, in fact, it specifically says you're weird because the carnival <laughs> toy is like that gigantic stuffed animal, or sometimes, you know, the carnival prize is not even an animal. It, I mean, it's like, it's a baseball bat. It's a gigantic stuffed baseball bat. Why? I don't know, but that's what you got. Um, so there's, and, and the carnival toy is, they're, it, they're just enthusiastically strange, you know, and they're also rather fragile because those toys are very cheaply made. And so the carnival toy, you know, the carnival prize will be big and weird. And when they take damage, like their stuffing starts falling and like the bean bags start falling out of them and stuff. And so like one of their, one of their abilities is that they, um, like they don't get lost, you know, when they roll a six or less, they start, you know, they, they lose a part, they start, the stuffing falls out, but it's like a breadcrumb trail to them. So, so they're less like, so they have a <laughs> So they can always find the way it's like, Oh, I was yeah. that way. You can see my pieces. <laughs> exactly. So I kind of like that. Um, uh, the socks, uh, you know, there's right now there's three forms for the sock. And one is the athletic sock, which I think is kind of cool. Uh, there's the hand at wool sock, which of course, as a knitter for me, that is, you know, that is just golden. But I think my favorite is probably the Christmas sock because it's a Christmas stocking and they don't actually have a pair, right? They don't have a, they're the Christmas stocking. They're just a single, there's just they're one. And when it, when people play that frequently, they have to address whether they actually believe that they have a, a mate or not. And, um, one of my friends played a uh, Christmas, oh, it was one of my best friends, uh, played a Christmas stocking who, uh, she, she believed that, uh, Mr. Left was out there. She was Miss Right. And she believed that Mr. <laughs> Left was, was out there for her. Um, it was very, very sweet. And she was, she was, she was cute, like, you know, kind of June Cleaver type of, type of character. So every time the party would get into like a internal argument, she'd be like, I don't think that's very nice. <laughs> that seems that very seems, much the old school. Yeah, yeah, just you know, prim and proper. Very prim, very proper. You know, and she's she's looking she's looking for her one. You know, so. Uh, well, that's great. That sounds that, that sounds awesome. I know I was uh, personally, I, I uh, play a lot of tabletop games, so I've got a lot of little models. So the ideas of the group of guys, the bunch of guys with all my little models being real is really i liked that one a lot yeah yeah that one's that one's a favorite a lot of people gravitate to that one and batteries not included is a really fun one that's the uh, that's where you have some sort of electronic gimmick um and, and it, it's come up a few times in in like the q and a's and stuff whether or not if your if your electronic gimmick is um like do you need batteries to then walk i mean the teddy bear doesn't need a battery to walk. And of course, no, I mean, your electronic gimmick might be that you walk, but that doesn't mean that you have to 
have a battery to do it. It might just be like, okay, to, to do the electronic part of the walking, sure. But if you just want to, you know, trundle along, that's fine. And it's, it's a, sort of a weird, like, <laughs> but so, like, a, if your eyes light up and you've got lots of flashies and doodads and yeah. little whirly gigs, you need the battery for those. Right. But just for the general walking and stuff, you you don't. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like basic things that all toys can do. You know, walking, talking, perceiving the world. Um, those don't go away, even if uh, even if you lose a part, or even if you lose, or even if you you know your batteries ran down, or anything like that. And that's an interesting thing about Threadbare. Like I mentioned, that you can be just like a, a ball of stuffing. That's all all that's left. Um, that ball of stuffing can still see the world just as just as well as the you know the the thing that has you know five thousand eyes. Um, <laughs> It's just sort of like, it's, it's a little, that's the part that's abstract. <laughs> you know, your hit points aren't abstract, but, but the rest of your like existence, your body, your, your, your mind. Your it's like a, a Tonka conscious. truck doesn't have eyes, but it can see. Exactly. So it doesn't have a mouth, but it can talk. It, uh, now I did see on the thing that it's, uh, you can do some stuff like if you get apart from something else that you do personality adjustment type stuff. Um, How's that work? That was actually, uh, so, so gosh, um, I'm not sure where you found that because that's been taken out. Has that um, been taken out? Okay. Yes. That was, well, I, I was, uh, where was it? Oh, that was in the, the story on the webpage. It mentioned yes. the truck was worried about it. That's yes. what it was. I, that, and I need to, I need to edit that. Um, so it used to be that there was sort of a, um, what we call an insanity mechanic in game design, which is that you have a degenerative, uh, mental state. And a lot of times that's something like, oh, uh, like in Call of Cthulhu, you have a, you actually have a sanity track or you might have stability, something like that. And it's problematic, um, for a lot of people for a lot of reasons. And it, I used to have that in Threadbare and I have discovered that I don't, I, the way that the game is now, four years after I started writing it is, so different and so much less grim. I don't need that. I, the game doesn't, it works just fine without it. So now if you want to make some part of your personality as part of your uh, character sheet, as one of your character parts, you can, but you don't have to. So you could damage like your favorite color, your concept of a favorite color that could get, that could be a, a part that gets damaged. Or you could just say, eh, you know what? Don't worry about it. I, I, I want my, my mind to be unassailable. Great. No problem. And then, and then that just, that's just never part of your story. Um, nice. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd wondered about that because I was like, man, that seems like a really hard mechanic to work in without a, without having someone who's really into role playing something or really strong into it. It seems like it would require a really strong player and a strong GM to make work well. Yeah. And it didn't, it didn't work well even in, in design and even with, um, I mean, I wrote the game and every time I ran it, uh, that mechanic, if it came up, it didn't play particularly strongly. And about most of the time, we just ignored it. Uh, and I would ask people later, did you miss that? And I think I only had one person who had ever really wanted to play that. And that was just because they're the kind of player who's like, oh, yeah, like if there's an insanity mechanic, I just want to try it out. <laughs> um, and, and she was disappointed because she had 
tried it out and she made her dice roll. And she's like, can I just voluntarily fail it? I want to see how this works. You know? <laughs> um, so yeah, there's, there's, it's a, it's really interesting to try to put that into a game and then find out that it doesn't, it just doesn't work in this one. So, well, that's why you play test. That's what the play testing is for. That's what four years of play testing did. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, it seems like it's gone pretty well. I was looking at the thing, and it looked like you crossed your original goal on day one. Yeah, yeah. we funded in the first day. Uh, we funded our first uh, uh, stretch goal. I don't know, like two days later, three days later, and then uh, we just as of um, as of last night, we funded our second stretch goal, which is a adventure where um, it's called Boogie Fever, I think, and it's. Um, the, the characters are building in some form or another uh, the best dance troupe that they can because there's a dance competition coming up. <laughs> and so like it's, it's basically like moving towards you know, the, the thrust of the adventure is there's a big dance off coming up and that's going to be the big like the quote fight scene uh, <laughs> is a dance sequence. So I like that. I like it's that a, a dance off. It's, it's a, a dance, dance off. off. Um, that's how I handle combat. Combat is done through a montage in this game. So like it's, it's resolved in less than five minutes and, uh, and you ask the players like what, what is, what is considered winning to you and how do you do that? And how did you get damaged? Cause you always get damaged if you get into combat. Uh, how did you get damaged in the process? And then that's, and that happens. It's just, there's no dice rolled at all it's just like okay you uh, just tell your story your individual stories about what it was that happened uh, during the time yeah you tell your story and it's and they always win the players always win the fight um, well it's not really about the the fight then are yeah you haven't set it up to be about the fight the fight means you've done something wrong if you got to that point it's not necessarily done something wrong it's just like look this is going to be a climactic scene and the story the story ends in a way that is not the story we want to tell with Threadbare if they always lose. So, yeah. you know, and most of the time when you're playing a role-playing game, you win the fight. You know, you pull out all the stops if you have to, but you win the fight. So that's kind of why, um, why it's like, okay, how did you win the fight? Now, in some cases, players may say, look, our version of winning this fight is losing because it's important to us that this thing happen and that's going to work best if we lost the fight or appear to lose the fight. Um, it's like, okay, so you actually like in terms of the, the combat or whatever it is you lose, but you get whatever it is that you were tra- getting, you know, trying to get. Okay. That's a win. That is it's, you know, the player's definition of a win, not necessarily what their characters thought was a win. Cause it's about the narrative primarily. Exactly. It's again, it's narrative control. It goes into the player's hands, which is awesome. It's one one of the reasons I love the the whole apocalypse world, dungeon world type games. Me too. Me too. I said this. I I, I have to say I, I backed this pretty much as soon as I found it. I, I really the thank description you. of this game is just wonderfully fun. Thanks. Well, thank you for joining us. Would you like to tell our our, our listeners anything else before we go? When you back the game you immediately get access to the beta playtest documents and a demo kit. So you can back this game for a dollar and start playing in less than an hour. 
which I think is really fun and a good selling point. And we'll have links to the Kickstarter on the ep- the show notes. And we had them on the last, last show notes. And I think I they're on the Twitter and everything else. I've sent them out their last episode. So. Awesome. And if any of your, well, if any of your listeners are um, interested in, in knitting and making and things like that, some of our future stretch goals include tutorials for making your own threadbare character um, and, and like, you know, crochet tutorials and things like that. Uh, but there's also, I'm just going to throw this out there. There's also a very high level backing tier where I will make a handmade toy, like a, a handmade soft animal or, or something like that for, for people who back at that tier or, or a pair of socks. So like there's a, there's a little handmade component in here that is available. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely something where I could see it's a good thing to have that as a limited set or else you could be a very, very busy person. Yeah, no, that's that that one is limited to, I think, three toys and three pairs of socks because I I my big thing as a, as a knitter is that I really don't knit for money. And I've had a lot of people ask me to. Um, and I'm just like, no, I, I knit I knit out of love. And so this is this is a very. A uh, big stretch for me to to offer my knitting for for money, but I think it's it's for a good cause. It's you know it's a it's a creative project. It's a it's something that is collaborative and fun. So well, I'm glad to hear that. And congratulations on hitting your goal. Thank you, thank you very much, and thank you so much for having me on the podcast, Tony. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for joining us. It's been wonderful having you. Well, once again, I'd like to thank Stephanie Bryant for her time and talk to us about Threadbare. I really like this game the more, even after talking to her, I like it even more than I did before. And I've actually started having ideas pop into my head that I've been writing down in my Game Master's notebook. But I'm definitely, I'm definitely very interested in this game. What do you think, Dennis? Well, it was fascinating. I had no idea until Stephanie really explained it, just how much time would be spent on something like this, just refining the rules of the game as she would, you know, constantly sort of alpha playing it over and over. I, I suppose I should have. I'm, I'm not a developer, but just I've heard a lot on the video game side of, you know, those development cycles and the need for balance and all of that. But I mean, it's obvious that she has poured a tremendous amount of effort to get this right uh, go And I think the the support that uh, we've been seeing for the Threadbare RPG is, is sort of bearing that out. Uh, I was, uh, you know, when you announced the, the game on the last podcast, I was uh, excited uh, at the idea of the toy parts kind of infecting the personality of the primary character. But hearing Stephanie explain why that ended up changing makes a lot of sense to me. And she did note that one can still play that way if we wanted to. So I'm safe no matter what. So if I want crazy Barbie girl infecting my Stay Puff Marshmallow guy, it's going to happen. Yeah, that's just that's one of the great things about the narrative style games is you can do stuff like that, and it's fine. It's not like it's going to have some big crunchy effect. Like I I know you and my our primary game together has always been D and D, which is a very crunchy game. Um, but with the more narrative games, you can play stuff like that and it deals more towards your actual role playing and less towards just rolling dice and being wandering murder hobos. Yeah. And while I, I understood like the concept that a game like this, especially with the parts construction that goes on in threadbare for fixed, sorry, I'll use air quotes. You can't see my air quotes cause we're on audio, but I'm doing them, uh, fixed hit points, uh, makes a lot of sense given the nature of the gameplay, but 
I actually have absolutely no experience in tabletop with narrative RPGing, where there's always an option to talk and you don't, you know, so to me, it's, this is, I am way out of my depth. I've never played a game like it. Yeah, I um, didn't start playing really narrative RPGs until a few years ago. I actually saw several people playing Apocalypse World uh, on Twitch. And from there, I got into a Dungeon World game at a CantCon at one time, uh, which is basically just... Uh, actually, it wasn't CantCon. I think it was uh, Recruits, which is basically just... Uh, uh, a version of Apocalypse World. Apocalypse World is, as you you know, it's a very kind of fallouty post-apocalypse thing, where Dungeon World uses the similar rule set, but it it plays in your more standard high fantasy type thing. And I've played a couple other uh, games that tend to be more narratively driven, like uh, Fate. Fate is really popular. Um, I've played two Fate games, and I haven't decided yet if I really like Fate or not, because it uses, you roll dice, but the dices don't have numbers, they just have positives and negatives and blanks, and you're trying to roll a certain number of positives and you know, to try and get over a certain threshold. It's kind of weird, but it's more narratively driven while still having a chunk of crunch compared to uh, like the Apocalypse World type games. Yeah, I think uh, I know you and Stephanie brought up Apocalypse World as I guess it, it, this that Threadbare sort of modeled on it in terms of the does it use a die six setup? Is that the yeah? It's it's a it's a d six setup. There's a lot of games um, that use the Apocalypse World engine is basically what it's considered. Like you would like the Unreal Engine in video games that uses what it is is you have stats and based upon your stats you have modifiers, <clears throat> so, which is very standard RPG. But in this case, you every roll in the game is 2d6 plus your modifier. And your modifier is only ever going to be like 2 or 3 at the max. Uh, so you're never going to get a roll higher than like 15. So that's what you – I mean, that, and that's like a perfect roll. And the way the, the way the game is, is on, on a 6 or less, something bad happens on a 6 to – to 10 or a six to nine, uh, something not what you want to do happens, but it's not perfect. Something's a little wrong and on, a, or a six to something. And then like a 12 and above, I'd have to look at the numbers again to be sure on them. But basically it's just a graduated, it's like bad. The GM decides what happens and it could be bad or it could be just, eh, but it's definitely not what you wanted or what you wanted to do happens, but there's a penalty or, hey, perfect, you did it. Because everything's designed around the narrative. Because the roles are just there to give you a little structure and a little direction. And so you can't just go, yeah, I win and have it actually happen. So it lets you, it gives you kind of plot hooks that work into it. Sort of what Stephanie was emphasizing about how we as, as mere adults need rules to help keep us our so that we know how to play. Probably. Exactly. It's exactly like that. We have to have something. We can't just sit down and play. I mean, we can't just. Not me. I don't I'm boring. <laughs> I mean, I mean, we could, but I, I don't know. I mean, some people do, but I remember even back in high school and such, like I know when I played Battletech, 
the Battletech RPG, we played pretty fast and loose with the rules in high school. I mean, we used them more as guidelines than anything else. Not like when we played D&D when we went pretty hardcore with the rules. That's and, right. You better not break my D&D rules. <laughs> but uh, with these more narrative games, and it's the reason I like these narrative games, is it can be more about it's not about going well you didn't min max your character so we don't really want to play with you because you're not as good of a murder hobo as you could be because none of that matters because you get to concentrate more on who your character is are you a you're you're some poor schmuck who started life as uh your dad dropped you off with your grandfather who was a drunken trapper and you learned from a young age to to trap and and hunt with a bow and this and that and after grandpa died you decided to go see the world you can concentrate on that and it would be okay for your stats or and your skills to be based around what a trapper would have as opposed to be well i trapped for all these years and i came out and i'm a specialized orc killing super soldier I mean, it, you don't have to do stuff like that. You can concentrate on your character as your character. It's a good point. I had I forgot about the min maxing and how it's like, hey, I'm a healer. Well, are you a dwarven healer? No. Well, why didn't you go for the wisdom modifier? You're apparently a loser healer because yeah, you, didn't, and, you didn't min max it right. And, and and that all depends upon who you play with anyway. Uh, even in crunchy games, there's a lot of people who prefer more role playing and less super uh, min-maxing, but there's always some people who that's all it is. It's just how they play. I find it to be a more... I mean, it's fun. I'm, I'm not saying anything bad about it. I'd sit down and play D&D or Pathfinder or something like it or, or Battletech again tomorrow without a problem. I just find that I kind of... As I've gotten older, I care more about my character and their backstory and who they are and what their goals are than when I was younger. And it was just like, I'm Gunter the Dwarf Warrior, and my goal is to be awesome. Oh, sure. But I think it's I think it fits with the same thing that we and when we and especially in our intros, we often bring up movies because we both well, we're not podcasting movies. We do both really get into them and how when you know, when we were younger, when we were teenagers, uh, spectacle was everything. CG effects were everything. And while we're at the point now where we still like to see that sort of spectacle, the awesomeness of destruction. Yeah, I don't want anybody to think that I don't like spectacle. And Trust me, awesome Tony CG. loves spectacle, guys. It's and good. Don't be don't be fooled. OK. I'm the refined one. He is the brute. That's just, uh, that's yeah. in terms yeah, that, of that, yeah. that's my role. I'm the brute. You're a thug. You're <laughs> thug. the thug. I'm always that's, the thug. You know, I play the thug character an awful lot. I have to admit that that is very true. That's my my go to archetype is the thug style character. Well, and mine's the healer. So I mean, that's just kind of the niche I ended up falling in. It's like, do I actually go around like doctoring people up in real life? No, I just like. You, <laughs> Well, I but, don't really. But, I'm not. I'm not actually the dumb guy who, who is forced to carry the bucket because otherwise I just run out of its protective embrace to smash stuff. Remind me in some podcast we need to go over the bucket because I need think to go over the bucket. People, people, people will want to know what what that word even is. But that, that, that was such a good, a good point. Game. We should probably see about getting some others in to talk with us because that was I have to admit that was a great game and I couldn't tell you how the story behind that game but I just remember how much fun we had playing that game oh yes 
Very much so. And anyway, Tony, awesome interview with Stephanie. Uh, well, thank I, you. It's fascinating to, to hear about Threadpair RPG with such detail from the creator. And yeah, I, I really enjoyed talking to her. It, it was a great interview and it was a lot of fun. Well, that really is our show for the day. So as a reminder to folks who are listening, please uh, vote in round two of our 1980s uh, Pinball Machine Mania tournament. And if you want to reach out to the show, we've got a number of ways you can do it. Uh, you can email us. At, our email address is eclecticgamerspodcast at gmail.com. We are also on facebook.com slash eclecticgamerspodcast. I believe, Tony, you've got us set up with uh, Twitter. Yep, we're on Twitter. We're eclectic underscore gamers. Um, and I check it at least every day once. I, I know I don't do as hardcore Twitter as some people out there who post 500,000 times in a day, but uh, I, I check it. Yeah, and I try and check the uh, the email account uh, every weekday. I usually am in there at least every weekday. Uh, also, please, uh, if you are enjoying the show, give us a rating and review on either iTunes or Stitcher. It does help people find the podcast who are looking for this sort of topic. And so we need that recognition and we greatly appreciate it when you give it to us. And that's pretty much it. So I will say goodbye for now. We will probably be back in another two weeks like we normally do. Thank you and uh, enjoy your weeks.